Welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church on this, the 18th of June. And uh, if you're a regular with us, or whether you visit us infrequently, whether you're a first-time visitor, whether you're here in the church itself, or whether you're listening in online, may I just welcome you all, and God bless you all. The reading is taken from Exodus 10, 21 through to chapter 11, verse 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me! Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbour and every woman of her neighbour for silver and gold jewellery. And the Lord gave the people favour in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of his people, of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes the distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, 
that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Thanks be to God. Well, please do take a seat, and let me add to Adrian's welcome. Lovely to see you here with us today. My name is Duncan. I serve as pastor here, and I'm part of the leadership team here, and it's a real delight to welcome you here as well. As we open up God's Word, um, please do have those verses that Leslie read for us in front of you. We uh, are working our way through the book of Exodus at the moment, and it is with a conviction that we want to open up all of God's words, even sometimes the parts of God's Word that may make us a little bit uncomfortable, and maybe you felt a little uncomfortable as you heard the content of those verses. We want to get to the heart of what God is saying to us. So I wonder, what is the most daring act of disobedience that you've ever been part of? I'm not, I'm not looking for anyone to volunteer what that is. Um, do you remember we had a prime minister who was once asked that question? And she gave an answer about something like running through the farmer's fields. Well, I bet you we can all top that one, right? I mean, that was pretty lame by anyone's standards. What is the most daring act of disobedience you've ever been part of? Maybe you had a teacher who terrorized the class, and for you to disobey felt like you were, you were, you were standing 10 feet tall to disobey this one. Or maybe you've disobeyed the law. And in fact, maybe it'll be the case that it will be the right thing to disobey the law. There's a thought for you. How brave we would need to be to do that. Could be a scary thing. And it is a bold thing to disobey your parents. And it's not a good thing. Parents, don't let them off with it. But I want to put it to you today that there is no more dangerous act of disobedience than disobeying God. There is no more dangerous act of disobedience than disobeying God. And that's what's laid out for us in graphic detail in the book of Exodus. It is the recounting of an amazing part of the history of God's ancient people Israel, of how some three and a half thousand years ago, God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was given the command through Moses to let the people go, and he had the audacity to say no to God, the most dangerous disobedience of all. And so God chooses to make himself known to Pharaoh, known to the Egyptians, to the Israelites, and to us as well as these things have been recorded for us by sending a succession of strikes or a succession of plagues against Egypt. And each one of those plagues was a fresh opportunity for Pharaoh to obey God. And so from chapter 7 through to chapter 10, there are nine plagues recorded for us. The river Nile turns to blood. There's a plague of frogs, a plague of gnats, a plague of flies, a disease that kills the Egyptian livestock, um, a plague of boils on humans and animals, a deadly hailstorm, a plague of locusts. And we came to number nine in chapter 10 just now, a plague of darkness. 
And this message today is kind of like a part three on seeing how God makes himself known through these plagues in Egypt. And so far, what we've seen is that they show us that God has dominion over the natural world. And all of these things we've already seen show up in these verses that Leslie read for us today. So, God has dominion over the natural worlds. Well, here we see God shuts out the light of the sun for three days. We've seen that God has dominion over the future. We see that God is always telling Moses and sometimes telling Pharaoh what he's going to do. And then we're told that things pan out just as he'd said. And so in this way, God says, well, at midnight, I'm going to go out and this final plague will fall. God has dominion over the future. And we've seen that God has dominion even over the hearts of kings. In verse uh, 27 of chapter 10, we're told the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we thought about how it's, it means not that God made Pharaoh into something that he wasn't, but that God strengthened Pharaoh's resolve to do what he always wanted to do. We've seen that even in judgment, God is patient. God keeps on speaking to Pharaoh. God even brings the plague to a halt when he knows that Pharaoh's heart hasn't yet been changed. God is patient. We've seen that in these plagues, God's highest motivation is himself, that the reason he raised up Pharaoh, the reason that he comes against Egypt so dramatically is so that his power might be seen in all the earth. It's for his glory. And again, in chapter 11, verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. We've seen that in the midst of these plagues, God knows his people. In the midst of the Egyptians are the Israelites. And here too, we saw that, didn't we? When the darkness fell, there was one group of people who were not in darkness. Who was it? God's people, the Israelites. And he says that he, he, he makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt. And we've also seen that God is more concerned with your heart than he is with your words, despite Pharaoh sometimes saying the right thing. We've seen that even though Pharaoh's words have seemed right, they've always been about preserving Pharaoh, not about revering or glorifying the Lord. God's really been speaking to us as we've walked through these plagues. And as I said, it's not always been comfortable, but that's how it should be. Because this is God whom we're meeting in the pages of Scripture. It should unsettle us to come face to face with God. And now we're coming to the end of the road for Pharaoh and Egypt. His consistent refusal to submit to God's word will mean that all that is left for him is God's judgment. So in chapter 10, we have that ninth plague, the plague of darkness. Chapter 11, God outlines what the tenth plague will be. And the question hangs over the situation for those hearing his word, what will it be? Will you receive God's word or God's judgment? The way that Pharaoh persists in his rebellion against God is a scandalous thing, especially when you see what God has revealed about himself to all of Egypt. 
The plagues are really God's way of saying, the Lord God is greater than all your gods. The Lord God is greater than all your gods. Because you see, the Egyptians had a system of worship that included lots of different gods. A few years back, there was a film called Gods of Egypt. Um, It sounds like you didn't miss much. But if you did see it, or if you ever looked at ancient Egypt at school, you will have come across some of these names. The Egyptian god Osiris was god of the underworld. His role was crucial in death and resurrection, and especially crucial in, in seeing that is the seasons of the Nile, how it rose and how it, how it cycled. This was his job to look after the Nile. And so, when the plagues come, and the river Nile turns to blood, and another plague comes, and frogs emerge out of the Nile and cover the nation, where is Osiris? Horus was the god of the sky. Pharaoh was supposed to be one of Horus's descendants. And so, when the sky brought a deadly hailstorm, and the sky brought a plague of locusts, well, where was Horus? And there was Ray, the god of the sun. Well, when thick darkness fell on Egypt for three days, where was Ray? You see, these plagues have been a deliberate takedown of all that the Egyptians believed kept them going, the things that they trusted in. At every turn, the Lord, the God of the Israelites, shows Himself to be God alone. And then there's Pharaoh, a descendant of the gods, the only true priest of the gods. And what is he left to? He is utterly impotent in the face of the Lord. And here is Pharaoh's firstborn son, another descendant from the gods. And the Lord threatens in chapter 11 to kill him. Could the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, really kill an Egyptian demigod? This is one long and painful lesson in God dethroning the false gods of Egypt. There's a wonderful episode later in Israel's history when um, one of Israel's enemies, the Philistines, they come and they steal the Ark of the Covenant, you know, this gold box which was at the center of Jewish worship of God. It symbolized God's presence, and the Philistines managed to steal it. And so, they set it up in their own temple, and next to this symbol of God's presence, they had their god, this statue of their god, Dagon. And in the morning when they checked in, they found that the statue of Dagon was face down worshiping the box. So they put him back up on his feet, and the next morning they find that Dagon is face down worshiping the box, and this time his hands and his feet have been cut off. And so they send the box back. You see, God is greater than all your gods. That's the constant, consistent message of Scripture. I suppose for us it can be a bit like when, when we've spent our lives worshiping at the altar of financial security. And as life has gone on, we've found that actually 
There's a whole lot of things that money can't buy. Can't buy your health. Can't make you a better person. It doesn't fix that broken relationship. And it certainly cannot buy you hope beyond death. But how many other of our gods could we put in its place? How many of us have spent much of our lives worshipping at the altar of popularity? Worshipping at the altar of lust? Worshipping at the altar of pride? Worshipping at the altar of science? And some of us have learned the hard way, haven't we? We've needed to see our gods dramatically dethroned. We've ended up flat on our face because we've worshipped these false gods. And God has had to tear them down from their throne to get our attention. As we read the pages of Scripture, we meet the Lord God. We meet Him especially in the Lord Jesus Christ. He exposes our idols, our false gods, for what they are. They are empty deceivers who cannot save us. The Lord God is greater than all your gods. And so when He speaks, you listen. And how we listen is crucial. There's a general rule when it comes to ending a war the defeated side does not get to dictate the terms of peace. If you know you've lost, you don't get to negotiate. You surrender, unless you really are crazy and really do hate your own people. The plagues in Egypt reveal you don't negotiate with God. You don't negotiate with God. It's clear, if you, if you read through this, isn't it, that Pharaoh has only ever had a losing hand in his attempt to resist the will of God. And that's become clearer and clearer with each plague that has fallen. And yet, even though he recognizes he can't win, Pharaoh tries to dictate the terms of peace. He tries to to dictate the terms on which he will submit to God. So let me show you this. It starts in plague number four with the plague of the flies in chapter eight. Pharaoh's response is to say, okay, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. In other words, he says, all right, all right, I'll let you go and worship your God, but you've got to stay within the boundaries of Egypt. And the response to Pharaoh is, no deal. During the plague of locusts, plague number eight, Pharaoh insists, okay, um, the, the adults can go and worship God, but you've got to leave your children behind. No deal. And even in the account that we've read, look at this, chapter 10, Verse 24, Pharaoh calls Moses and says, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. And Moses says to him, verse 25, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice 
to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. In other words, no deal. You don't negotiate with God. The Bible tells the story of a a wealthy and influential man who came to Jesus with the most important question anyone could ever ask. He asked Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? So Jesus said something about keeping the commandments, and it was music to the man's ears. He quickly jumps back in and he says, well, all of these commandments I've kept since I was a boy. And Mark's gospel tells us Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Here's the terms that Jesus sets this man who thinks he has kept God's law And his response to Jesus is recorded like this, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, what Jesus was doing with this man was putting his finger on something to show him that actually he had another God that he worshipped that was more precious to him than even Jesus Christ, and it was his money. And this man, instead, he wanted to come to Jesus. He wanted to have all of the privileges of eternal life, and yet he wanted to continue to have his favorite extra God, his money. And Jesus says to him, in effect, no deal. You don't negotiate with God. Listen to to these words of Jesus. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You know, the call of God through his son, Jesus Christ, can be difficult for us to hear. But when you realize who Jesus Christ is, then you understand that the words of that call are entirely reasonable. Anything less would be foolish. You see, God himself has come as a man to bring us eternal life, and he says this is the way. It is to follow him. And he says that that following of him will be marked out in some quite specific ways. It's focused on Jesus. It's following him. It's not focused on me. He calls me, he calls you to deny ourselves. And so it's to to enter into this way of thinking, isn't it? To say, I'm a follower of Jesus, And because of that, the primary driver for the decisions that I make is no longer going to be just what I want to do, no longer going to be just what I feel like doing, but what He wants me to do. And so however deep my desires might be to do something, 
If he doesn't want me to do it, then I will choose to follow him. Because I understand that the Christian life is one of saying no to myself and yes to Jesus Christ. And that applies to every part of life. To carry one's cross, as Jesus puts it, is to submit one's whole life to the way of Jesus Christ. And yet, how many of us want to negotiate with him here, don't we? We want to negotiate this calling. Oh, I want to follow Jesus, but I still want to be free to hold that grudge against her. I want to follow you, Jesus, but I want to be free to sleep with whoever I want. Oh, I want to follow Jesus, but I don't want to commit to a church. I want to follow Jesus, but I still want to spend all my money on me. No deal. No deal. We don't negotiate with God. Are you negotiating with God today? It's a perilous thing. I mean, we praise the Lord that He's gracious. We must not presume upon these things. We all have blind spots, that's for sure. But when we are deliberately renegotiating the terms of our peace with God, then we've forgotten who we are. And more crucially, we've forgotten who God is. We don't negotiate with God. And we say that with certainty because of the final thing that I want to mention today. It's something that's seen throughout all the plagues and especially again in chapter 11. Now, since the children are in junior church, I want to talk to you freely about a little trick that we use as parents. I say it's a trick. It's a, it's a deep and profound weakness. It's called the empty threat. It's a risky strategy where the parent demands that the child do something or a severe penalty will be applied. And it's always a more severe penalty than you've normally heard me threaten. But of course, the parent has no intention ever of following through. If you don't finish your tea, you'll not get to the park tomorrow. If you don't eat your vegetables, there's no way you're getting that sleepover. <laughs> if you don't stop answering back, I'm going to have to speak to your teacher in the morning about this. Now, now these tactics, they sometimes work in the moment, but eventually they do create problems down the line because we have the curse of having children who are smart and they see through this routine and they know an empty threat from a hundred yards out. Anyway, we saw in chapter 4 of Exodus, this is going somewhere, that part of God's message to Pharaoh was this, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. That seems severe, doesn't it? Surely it's an empty threat just to get Pharaoh to do what God wants. God wouldn't do that, would he? Well, chapter 11 comes along, and though we'll see the execution of it in chapter 12, we see that God doesn't make empty threats. 
God's judgment is real. God's judgment is real. So look at how God describes this final plague that is coming. Chapter 11, verse 4. This is Moses now recounting this to Pharaoh at this point. About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. I want you to see here that God does not delegate this act of judgment to someone else. He says in verse 4, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. He states the time. He states the scale of what he'll do. And it is all in the justice of his judgment. I mean, that's what we were introduced to back in chapter 4. Pharaoh, the head of Egypt, has taken God's firstborn. And despite being given multiple opportunities to return God's firstborn, Pharaoh has refused. And so God will take Egypt's firstborn sons. God's justice compels God to judge. In fact, even those verses from Psalm 9 that Adrian read earlier include that theme. The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. This is God's care, too, for his son. Now, Israel, who are delivered eventually from Egypt, the firstborn son of God, would prove not to be a true son, because their history is one of rebellion and disobedience. But the Bible goes on to show us that God sent his true firstborn son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Israel, who was obedient to his Father in every way. On more than one occasion, we would read of God the Father saying of his true firstborn son, this is my beloved son, with him I am well pleased. But here's the amazing thing. God is the one who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God's judgment is real, and I say that confidently because God gave his firstborn son to be killed, to be judged, and to be condemned in the place of undeserving sinners, like you and like me. If God's judgment was an empty threat, then he would never have his son go through it. No, it's precisely because God's judgment is real that we need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ, who calls each one of us to turn from sin, to believe in him, and to see in him all that we need to be right with God, and to simply come follow him. You see, God's judgment is real because God's promises are real. 
way back at the burning bush when God was giving Moses his commission, he said that not only was he going to deliver God's people from slavery, but that they would plunder the Egyptians because such would be the favor that the Israelites had in their sight. The Egyptians would give away their gold and their silver and their clothing. And here, at the start of chapter 11, that impossible to imagine event takes place. Verses 2 and 3. Speak in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. We saw last week God makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. We mentioned that briefly. That's mentioned in verse 7. Again, as they go out, there's wailing amongst the Egyptians, but Moses confidently says, but not a dog will growl against any of the people of Israel that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction. The Lord knows his people. And we see here the people around Pharaoh, first his magicians, then his advisors, and even the people of Egypt. They now revere Moses, not Pharaoh. You see that in verse 3? The man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of of the people. They can see all that God is through what has happened. They can see that the God of the Israelites is not one to be messed with, and yet Pharaoh in his stubbornness will not yield. And so the warning that is given about the the death of the firstborn, it brings nothing from Pharaoh. That warning is given to him, and we simply read in verse 8 that Moses leaves the presence of the king in hot anger. No response. He will not submit. And why is Moses so angry? Why does he come out burning with anger? Surely there's at least two reasons for that. I mean, first of all, the affront that it is to see someone so resolute in defying the living God. But surely this, this anger that burns in Moses is driven, by, is driven by compassion. I mean, this is the sort of thing you should get angry about, to see someone willing to see this miserable judgment fall upon the people, to see every family over whom he rules sent into heartbreak, all because he is too proud to submit. It's shameful. It's disgraceful. And it's devastating to watch someone self-destruct in that way. We should be moved by that. And it's still something we should be moved by. I wonder if you're a Christian here today. When was the last time seeing people actively reject the life that Christ offers When was the last time seeing people reject that really caused us to burn inside with compassion, with sorrow, maybe even with some kind of godly anger, that people would turn their backs on Jesus Christ? And here today, in this room even, God stands and because He's showing us what He's like, He's showing us our own weakness, isn't he? He's showing us our sinfulness before him. He shows us the reality of his judgment that must come against it. 
And he shows us today again his wonderful son. He shows us the impeccable life, the sacrificial death on the cross of Jesus Christ. He shows us the triumph of his son over death by his resurrection from the grave. He lets us hear the promise of Christ come to our ears that whoever comes to him will be rescued and will be given eternal life. And yet so many, and even some here today, I fear, would trample over this message about the Lord Jesus and deny that they need any of it. I urge you today, I plead with you, there is a proper dilemma presented to you right now. Will you hear and respond to God's words, or are you content to be resigned simply to God's judgment? There's a Savior ready to receive you, even now, wherever you sit right now, to forgive you, to transform you. Don't turn your back on him for a minute longer. Look to Jesus in faith and find eternal life. Let me just pray for a moment. Father, we want to thank you for this wonderful reality that you are a God who who wants us to know you. And we are sorry, Lord, for the times where we try and neatly package you, try and domesticate you in some ways. And Lord, we simply have to confess, you're not like us. But Lord, you are supremely wonderful compared to us. Lord, we thank you for your, for your power, for your majesty, for your justice. Lord, we thank you for your patience, We thank you for your grace that comes to us in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that today, right now, you hold out the offer of forgiveness of sins and new life with Jesus. And I pray, Father, that there's not one of us here today who would resist turning to Jesus Christ and finding all of his goodness. O Lord, dethrone every false God and bring us to Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.